Um, while Jesus may have appeared to disciples, to Paul, and to many others in the Bible, you can't call his appearance to individuals or to groups as his second coming. His second coming hasn't happened yet. So you can't say that Christ has, his second coming is over. That's That cannot be substantiated. Sure, he appeared to Paul. Sure, he appeared to um, uh, the, the apostles after the, he rose up from the dead. But that is an appearing, um, but not his second coming. And so one cannot say that Jesus has already returned. Um, and there is this tendency to look at John 20, verse 17, if you go there. This might take about 10 or 15 minutes, but it'll be worth our time. And then I'll go to the main topic. And uh, John 20, verse 17. John 20, verse 17. John 20, 20, verse 17. And it says that in John 20, 17, um, this is when Mary sees Jesus in the garden. So let's start at uh, verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. It's assumed from that that Jesus somehow had to go to heaven and come back. But once Jesus rose again, he stayed on the earth for 40 days before he ascended. Yeah, so there is a tendency to think, here's how most people interpret it. I used to do the same, um, that the grave was open, Jesus came out, he, Mary met him, and she went to, towards him and he said, don't touch me. And some say, Jesus said, don't touch me because she was a woman. Others say, Jesus said, don't touch me because any touch from a human person would pollute him before he went to heaven. And the third uh, idea is that he had to go to heaven, place before the Father his blood and come back. While Hebrews 9 just does talk about Jesus presenting himself as a sacrifice and his shed blood for our sins, I do not think it is right to literally interpret him as taking his blood before the Father. That It shouldn't be interpreted like that way. Go to Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9. Keep your finger in John... Uh, oh, no, you can't keep your finger when you're doing using your iPhone. Uh, Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9. Verse... Um, Hebrews 9 verse 11. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter it by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. So that is the basis for uh, that people used to say, Jesus first went to heaven and then came down and now he could be touched. That he met Thomas and showed Thomas his wounds after he came back from heaven. Um, there's in not enough grounds for that. Jesus rose from the dead and stayed on the earth for 40 days. In those 40 days he met with about 512 people who saw him alive. And then after 40 days, he ascended to heaven. That's what really happened. So let's look at some scriptures. Um, Acts 3, Acts chapter 3, 19 to 21. So, so what is he saying when he tells Mary, do not hold on to me right now. If I had to finish this service and go for another meeting in Richmond, and if you came and said, hey, Jacob, just wait for a second. I said, don't, uh, not right now, man, I gotta go. Uh, don't don't hold me right now. I gotta go. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying you've got a job to do. Go tell them that I'm going to my father and your father. My uh, tell my brothers. And he wasn't saying he's going right then and there. It's it's an assumption, 
this is not a big deal but it's a big deal to say that the second coming is over that Jesus went to heaven and came back so his second coming is over that is a big deal but whether we are right about this interpretation it's not that a big deal but to say that Jesus Christ has already come that the second coming is over is a big deal I do not agree with this Uh, it has been, it's gaining popularity. It, it, it's gaining quite a lot of popularity. This is not a, um, this is not an occasional view. More and more, this is being taught. That Jesus' second coming has already happened. And this is one of the ways it's taught. So it's, it, books have been written about it. So it's not new. But um, he ascended, uh, let's go to Acts chapter 3, just so we can substantiate it with scripture. Acts chapter 3, 19 to 21. Acts chapter 3, 19 to 21. I think I have the right scriptures. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything. What it's saying there is that Jesus will come. Not that he has already come. First Corinthians 11. This 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 is such a such a common scripture which we look at every month. First Corinthians 11, verse 26. First Corinthians 11, verse 26. Every time we have communion, this scripture comes to mind. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until. He comes. Okay, let's look at another scripture. Second Thessalonians, a book we don't even know where it is because we don't go there too often. Second Thessalonians, just the name Thessalonians just makes it difficult to go to that book. Second Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. Second Thessalonians 1, 6 and 7. God is just, 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 and 7. If you find it in the uh, uh, Pew Bible, just call out the page. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8, 3, 7. And here's what it says. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to those who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. So it is not yet happen it is supposed to happen revelations 22 20 revelations 22 verse 20 and 21 last page in the bible revelations 22 verse 20 and 21 revelations 22 last two verses of the bible revelations 22 verse 20 and 21 it says there He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. So we are talking about Maranatha. Come Lord Jesus. So I would say yes, he has appeared to many. But I wouldn't say that it has been his second coming. Let's look at two other verses. Luke 24. Luke 24. Luke. Yeah. Luke 24. Verse 51. Luke 24. Verse 51. Or let's start at verse 50. Luke 24, verse 50. Last uh, para in the book of Luke. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple praising God. That's when he ascended. There isn't a scripture that would indicate that he ascended between meeting Mary and then went to heaven, came back, and then ascended again. There is no scripture that says that. So it's an assumption. We could be wrong, we could be right. But you cannot say it's his second coming. And one more scripture. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 3 to 8. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 to 8. This is what happened during the 40 days. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 8. 
for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. So you see the series of people. It never says he died, he rose again, he ascended, he came back, and then he appeared. It says he died, he rose again, and then he began to appear to all these people. So since there is no specific scripture that says otherwise, we'll just stick with this for now. And if God shows otherwise, we'll change. But nowhere does it say his second coming was when he came down. Yeah? So that's one. The second thing we need to look at is um, uh, what is the new heaven and new earth? Because that's also being talked about. Books have been written about it. I was surprised there's a number of books written about what the new heaven and new earth is. So we look at that. Uh, These are so that in the future um, we will know where we stand and what we need to change. And should God show us differently, we'll change it. But right now, based on scripture, this is what we can assume. Um, Here's a statement made by many books and people who are better than me. Heaven and earth refers not to heaven and earth, but to the temple in Jerusalem. That's a, a, a view that is now being written about. That heaven and earth is not actually heaven and earth, but it is the temple. And therefore, people begin to preach that since the temple was destroyed, that is the old heaven and earth, and this is the new heaven and earth, we. And that cannot be substantiated from scripture. Okay, so let me make that statement again. There are books being written and people preaching this, um, and good people are preaching this where because God says the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool and because he dwelt in the temple in Jerusalem, people are saying that heaven and earth was actually the temple. And therefore, when in the Bible they write, the old heaven and earth shall pass away and the new heaven and earth shall come. In AD 70, when the Romans destroyed the temple, the old heaven and earth passed away and we live in the new heaven and earth. This uh, cannot be substantiated from scripture yet. It doesn't have scriptural muscle, so we'll have to let it be. Otherwise, it can lead into error. So look at Romans 8, 19 to 21. Romans 8, 19 to 21. Yeah, Romans 8, 19 to 21. So these are interpretations, but they because they don't have enough scriptural muscle uh, it's best to not go down that route because it can lead to it it may lead to error so Romans chapter 8 verse 19 Romans chapter 8 verse 19 to 21 it says here creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed for the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. So this, the cosmos that we presently occupy is in decay, just like we are in decay. We will die, our bodies are decaying, but one day it will be set free, just as we are going to be set free. Another scripture to look at, is Second Peter three, Second Peter three. And please understand, guys, these are common, becoming commonly held views. It's not an occasional view. That's why. Just be aware. Second Peter three, ten to thirteen. Second Peter three, ten to thirteen. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? 
you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of heaven by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. It's very clear there, isn't it? And it doesn't equate anything with the temple or with stuff. And then the last scripture that we can look at for now is Revelation 21.1. Revelation 21.1. Revelation 21.1. And it says there, Then I saw a new heaven. Oh, it's closed. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. So it looks like there is a new heaven and a new earth coming. So these are three scriptures that indicate that. And then the third um, issue that I want to deal with, which is again being written about, <laughs> is that, and uh, for instance, um, th there's, I don't need to name names now. There, there's a famous church in uh, the U.S. that is beginning to teach this uh, from the Song of Songs and so on. So here's a third view that we've got to be careful of. That in heaven, there will be the mature bride and then others who are not mature. That, that there'll be two categories in heaven. There'll be those of us that are mature and are really overcoming uh, people and they will be the closest to Christ. And then there will be others who are not mature. So an elite mature and a not so mature. This almost begins to sound like Jehovah's Witnesses where there will be 144,000 chosen and then the rest. So that is not a view that uh, has any uh, strength either. The parables don't indicate that God chooses those who are mature to be the bride or to be closest to him while others are outside or bridesmaids. So um, what if all of us make it to heaven, but few of us are the bride and few of us are bridesmaids? That won't be fun. Uh, forget the fun part of it. I, 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 let me be serious about it. I, I don't see any such indication in the Bible. The parable of the wedding feast where, uh, Jesus, uh, where the uh, guy invites a lot of people, but there's a man that's not dressed well and he's thrown out. I don't think you can equate that to the guys who were called for the wedding feast for the guys who are going to be close to Christ and the others are not. So let's look at some scriptures and then close this. So what I'm trying to say is this. The parables don't indicate that God chooses those who are mature to be his bride and closest to him while others are on the outside or bridesmaids. There, there are no different categories like that. And uh, there are rewards in heaven, guys. There are rewards in heaven. But the same God who didn't think very highly of Jacob and Rebekah when they, well, Isaac and Rebekah, when they showed favor to Jacob and Esau and literally split the family, isn't going to be a God who says, you, 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 you can be the bride. You, 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 hmm, bridesmaids, stay out, stay out now. He's not that kind of a God. It goes against the very nature of God. Some things have to be examined just based on the nature of God. As parents, we don't do that to our children. You and you can be special and all mine, but you and you can stay on the outside because you're not mature yet. In fact, Jesus has a tendency to sh uh, or a divine preference for the powerless and the weak. So let's look at some scriptures. Galatians 3, 26 to 28. Galatians 3, 26 to 28. Twenty-six to twenty-eight should be. So we'd like to check your Bible and uh, just verify. <laughs> Galatians three twenty-six to twenty-eight. So here's what it says, and look at this beautiful statement right off the bat: "You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus." For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves. With Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, 
male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So it doesn't, if that is how he looks at the church here on earth, may I suggest it will be even better than heaven, that there won't be that kind of a division. Second scripture, uh, Revelations 21. Revelations 21. Verse 20, uh, Revelation 21, 27. Revelation 21, 27. This is to say who will and who will not be in uh, heaven. It's a very clear demarcation. There aren't extra categories. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. It's a very simple statement. If your name is in the Lamb's Book of Life, uh, then there won't be. Lamb's Book of Life, part one, the mature ones, the not mature ones. Mature lambs and immature lambs won't be there. <laughs> and uh, uh, 22, 17, chapter 22, 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And whoever is thirsty, let him come. Whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. So the spirit and the bride are always inviting. They're not trying to demarcate. And the last scripture, Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. Ephesians. Ephesians. Ephesians 4. Four. Verse 4 to 6. And that's the last one. Ephesians 4, verse 4 to 6. here's what it says there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope when you were called one lord one faith one baptism one god and father of all who is over all and through all and all in all it's it's one not a division there so just keep these scriptures in mind uh, so that regardless of how many books may be written uh, that till we can verify something uh, substantially with a lot of scriptural muscle, even when we hypothesize or assume something, that we do it with this intent of hold it loosely because I'm really not sure of this, because otherwise it brings unnecessary confusion, uh, where we've got enough meaty matters to deal with. Why throw in tofu? Alrighty, now we can... Any questions before we move on? No. No. The Judgment Day is something called the Great White Throne Judgment, which is uh, after the Second Coming. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, again, uh, again, this is a careful assumption we are making. Uh, I, if this, if um, God changes our view, we'll change. Uh, in First Thessalonians, it says, and uh, with a trumpet call, Jesus descends, and then uh, we meet him in the air. But then after that, it doesn't say which direction Jesus is going. We don't know. Uh, for some reason, we assume that he meets us in the air and then does a reversal, but we don't know. So till we find out, we'll let it be. But at present, uh, all we know is we meet the Lord in the air. And then uh, that is sufficient. <laughs> uh, isn't that wonderful? That if we meet the Lord Jesus in the air, that is more than enough. I don't care where he goes after that. <laughs> but in, yeah, it's, it's him doing it. I'm so grateful to be face to face with him. Now you can go wherever you want. I'll come. Up, down, left, right, I'm there with you. <laughs> and it'd be a shame if we try to figure out the direction. Uh, not a shame, My meaning no need of spending time on that. So any other questions? Yep. It can be distracting, yeah. It can be. And yet we are supposed to figure things out too, uh, but with s scriptural muscle. Okay, can we go on with the teaching today? Okay, uh, you've given out the sheets, Ryan?
Man, you're good even when your folks are not here. Alrighty, uh, I'm ready. Wayne, good to tape? Okay. Guys, uh, we've been talking about kingdom ethics. We talked about um, two of the Beatitudes last week. And so now we do the next two. Um, I think two should be enough. Uh, so in Jesus, the kingdom, and uh, what did we define the kingdom as? Yeah, the governing influence of Jesus Christ's life. That's what the kingdom is. The governing influence. Man, you're already convicted, eh? Later, Karen. She's going for that festival of hope thingy. Yeah. Derek was there as a protester, but we forgive him. <laughs> In Jesus, the kingdom or the governing influence of his life breaks into the kingdom of darkness, oppression, and death. So you've got this kingdom of darkness, oppression, and death. But in Jesus, the governing influence of his life breaks into this. But the beautiful thing is this, guys we might think that we actually live here in this kingdom of darkness, oppression, death. But because we are in Jesus, it is through us and by his spirit that he's trying to bring his life and his light into darkness, oppression, and death. I mean, just think of this, sir. You used to live here. You used to live here. Your life was dark. Your life was oppressed far more than it is now. And there are times where there, our lives are still dark. But your life was dark. Thanks so much, man. Uh, your life was oppressed. Your life was headed for death and hell. And then one day, Jesus comes. Someone comes. Some Franklin Graham or some Billy Graham or some not Graham comes and brings the governing influence of Jesus' life into your heart. And the moment that happens to your heart, you get removed from here and find yourself lodged in Christ. But Christ doesn't take you to heaven. He says, you are in me in this. That's what he's doing. And therefore, who does the governing influence of his life come through? By the Holy Spirit, through us. By the Holy Spirit, through us. Fascinating. By the Holy Spirit, through us. And Jesus is saying, in these Beatitudes, I'll tell you how to live so that you can be more and more effective in bringing my life into this kingdom of darkness, oppression and death. That's what he's saying. Let me, let me show you some simple ways where, Jacob, you can be highly effective in bringing my life into the kingdom of darkness, oppression, and death. Every week, guys, every week, you should have at least one itsy-bitsy, teeny-weeny story about how you did something that caused the life of Jesus to enter into someone or some situation. Because it's impossible to live a whole week unless you're locked up in your house with your cat. It is impossible to live a whole week and not affect somebody with something. It may be a kindness. But every week we should have this. Every week. It has to happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and guys, here's the thing. Huh? This is why when I say share a story, w w what what we should expect is here's a way that the governing influence of the king um, was introduced into someone's life through a simple action of mine. And when you really think of it, there aren't too many of us who didn't have that happen this week. 
something or the other happened. We, we are thinking of miracles, healing, salvation. No man, there are so many other things that happen. Where the governing influence of the life of Christ enters somebody. Today we are only going to talk about two things. Mercy and righteousness. That's all. And Jesus is saying, here is how you can do this, Jacob. Become like this. The Beatitudes are a self-portrait of Jesus. If Jesus could paint a picture, he painted it with words. He said, this is what I look like. Become like this and see what happens. Any questions on this? You were here. Someone came and brought in the governing influence of Christ's life into you. Through words. It changed your heart. Colossians 1.13 kicked in. Out of the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the sun. You are now in Christ. Again and again the Bible says, you are in Christ, Christ is in you. You are in Christ, Christ is in you. You are in Christ, Christ is in you. And now Christ says, I am king of the universe. And I choose to intervene, break into this kingdom of darkness, oppression and death by the sovereign power of my spirit who is there to set captives free, open blind eyes, pronounce favor. But who do I do it through? I primarily do it through you, Dagmar, through you, Jillian, through you, Don, through you, Ryan. But let me tell you how to be super kingdom friendly. Become like this. And then he presents the Beatitudes. So here's the first Beatitude that we're looking at today. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Strange. Jesus is not saying blessed are they who do righteous things, though that's super important. Jesus is not even saying blessed are they who are declared righteous, because he declares people righteous. He isn't even saying that. He isn't saying, blessed are they who do righteous things. Nor is he saying, blessed are they who I declare righteousness. His emphasis is simply on this. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And here's a crazy definition of righteousness. Unfortunately, I didn't come up with it. Daryl Johnson did. And it's so simple, it just disarms you. Righteousness is entirely about relationship. Righteousness is entirely about relationship. It's not about living up to legal standards. It's entirely about relationship. So, it is about living in faithfulness to the terms of a relationship. Righteousness is entirely about, entirely about relationship as in are you faithful to the claims of are you faithful to the claims to the terms sorry to the terms of a relationship or the claims of any given relationship are you faithful to the claims of any given relationship I'll explain that. Are you faithful to the terms or the claims of any given relationship that is laid upon you? This is why is a spouse faithful to the claims and the terms of the relationship that they enter into when they enter the contract of marriage or the covenant of marriage? Are you faithful to the claims and the terms of the relationship when you take on the citizenship of a country? Are you faithful to the terms and claims of the covenant that Christ has established with you? Because at the end of the day, righteousness is entirely about relationship. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for right relationship. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for right relationship. Isn't that beautiful? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for right relationship. 
You know what they used to call the Ten Commandments, what Paul calls what Paul calls the Ten Commandments in the New Testament. In Romans 9.31, he calls it the law of righteousness. And what did the Ten Commandments outline? The relationship between man and God and man and man. That's what it outlined. What was the first, how does it start? How does the Ten Commandments start? Sorry, so you were saying? Love the Lord your God with all your... Anyone else? It's crazy. I used to think the same thing. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. It starts with, I am your God. It starts with this whole thing of relationship. I am your God. The Ten Commandments, we've made it this list of do's and don'ts when it was really, here is how man needs to be with God and here is how man needs to be with man. The first four are how man should be with God. And the next six are how man should be with man. Do not steal, do not covet, do not kill, do not do that. And so what happened to the Pharisees and Israel was they started maintaining the do's and don'ts without any desire for right relationship. So as long as one didn't sleep with someone else's wife, it was okay. But to desire and to lust after her is completely okay. As long as one didn't spill blood, it was okay. But to hate and wish that the other person would die, didn't matter. Right relationship is always a condition of the heart, which is then worked out. And therefore, this is why, guys, disobedience is so grievous, not because a code of ethics has been violated, but because a relationship has not been taken seriously. Disobedience is so grievous in the eyes of God, not because oh, I had told him to do this and he didn't do it, but because the terms of a relationship or the condition of a relationship is not taken seriously. That's why it's grievous to God, not because something is broken. He can always fix that which is broken. But what is every time I sin, what is violated is my relationship. This is why for a woman, more than sometimes a man, to be betrayed or cheated on by her husband is such a violation. It's very hard for a woman to handle that. The man can come and say sorry a million times and promise and bring chocolates and jewelry and the works, but inside there's such a violation of a relationship. Righteousness is about relationship. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for right relationships for they will be satisfied that's why jesus didn't think much of the letter of the law he didn't think much about do not murder so well you haven't committed murder you're righteous remember the rich man who came and said i have followed every uh, how shall i enter into the kingdom of god and jesus said go do the commandments i've I've held on to every one of them. And what was he saying? I have not slept with anybody. I have not killed anybody. I've not stolen anything from anybody. But Jesus didn't care much about the letter of the law because the intent and the faithfulness of the heart is what makes a relationship right or wrong. And here's the other thing, guys. This makes it a little more difficult. There are four relationships that God wants us to get right here on earth. First one, a right relationship with what do you think they are? with him. So the first one would be a right relationship with God, as in to get into a right relationship where you begin to experience the delight he has in you. Otherwise, you never experience that. Religion is when there is uh, a desire to please him. Relationship is when there is a desire to enjoy his delight over you and then respond. He first loved me. Beautiful, huh? Religion is when there is a desire to appease God, to please Him, to get into His good books. But relationship, and only Christianity has this, no other religion has it. Relationship is when one wants to delight in the delight that God has over you. 
other ones right so a right relationship with god what else pardon with the body let's assume that that's part of christ and the body yeah or, or use another word with others with others in the body and outside the body too with others right relationship with others this is why jesus said if you are bringing a sacrifice to the altar and you find that chris has something against you leave your gift at the altar and go settle things with chris go ahead dilian i'm just kidding <laughs> so, so so go settle things with chris so that you can move on why because it was important for him a right relationship with god a right relationship with others what's the next one two more uh it'll all come under others let's put that also under others everything else comes under others so it's it's not one of those things it's not government it's not all all of that comes under others third one that's already here with god cats and dogs <laughs> there's a fifth category <laughs> Pardon? Yeah. Crazy with creation. That really I didn't like. Cuz suddenly recycling maybe something I need to reconsider. <laughs> Cuz uh, a right relationship with creation is important for God. I mean, an environmental engineer like Uh, Derek would never have a problem like this because he's so f- finicky about stuff like that that everything goes into the same bin. And so, moving on, <laughs> a right relationship with creation. This is so important, guys. I, I don't know enough about it, so I, all I can say is it is important, and that is critical to God to have a right relationship with creation. He still does that, eh? day in, day out. And maybe one day we'll look at it. Uh, at present, I don't know enough about it. anything i say will just be talk and the fourth one assuming cats and dogs are excluded for now what would be the fourth one with ourselves with ourselves a right relatedness or a right relationship with ourselves David says in, in Psalm 51 verse 6 Psalm 51 verse 6 Psalm 51 verse 6 He says and here's here's what he says Surely I was sinful at birth sinful from the time my mother conceived me Surely you desire truth in the inner parts you teach me wisdom in the inmost places where there's a there's a right relatedness to oneself to one's body to one's soul to one's strength to one's spirit for god this is important this is why he says it's so important i mean we 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 talked about this in 2013 or 2014 um love the lord your god with all your uh, mind strength and heart and love your neighbor as you love yourself and if if i don't get the right relatedness with myself i'm not able to then go and help my neighbor the way i'm supposed to help my neighbor i'm just listing it now maybe another day we'll touch on this but please think about this a right relationship and right relationship with others means that there's a greater demand on honesty greater demand on justice as in doing that which is just greater demand on mercy and greater demand on servanthood these are uh, let's forget what i just said let's just focus on these little things because this itself is overwhelming these are the right relationship things guys righteousness is about right relationship guys do you see why jesus said all the law is summarized in this one thing love your neighbor as you love yourself what was he trying to say that if i actually like matt then i will not steal from him then i will not do anything that will be to his detriment that i in my anger will choose to forgive and show mercy not um do harm 
Once that is established, once right relationship is established, the law is not necessary. Just think of that. When right relationship is established, you don't need the law. When right relationship is established, you don't need tithing. Is no law. <laughs> Against this, there is no law. I mean, uh, when when you don't have a relationship with somebody and you have to give them money, you'll calculate how much they gave and then decide whether you want to give 10% less or 10% more. But if there is a right relationship, what do you care? Same with God. <laughs> Same with God. Critical this is. Huh? I love the fact that righteousness is about right relationship. Simplifies things. And that it affects God, others, creation, and with myself. So in a world that is so opposite to this, in a world that is broken, in a world that is alienating, in a world that manipulates, in a world that is full of fear, in a world that is um, full of hate and violence, look at what God is asking. And this is why it's so, sometimes it, these beatitudes are not as easy as you think. God is saying, hey guys, begin to hunger like a starving man who cannot live if he doesn't find the right relationship. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst. Most of us on good days will have a mild dissatisfaction if these things are out of sync. Ah, not everything is good in my world. I'm not in good relationship with God and with others. Creation, don't even talk about it. And with myself. <laughs> That's our attitude. And there's mild dissatisfaction. And in, in, in contrast to my mild dissatisfaction is Jesus' simple command saying, hunger and thirst for it like a starving man who will die if he cannot get this. What a demand, man. I pray God that by his spirit, you and I will begin to take this to heart. That right relationship is critical to God. Critical to God. First with Him, with others. I would put with oneself and with creation. Let's work in that order. Yeah, creation right on top and that's it. You recycle and Mother Nature will take care of you. Critical it is, guys. I, I, unfortunately, I don't have the words to convince me or you of the emphasis that Jesus is putting on this. Because remember what he's saying, blessed are you when? When you hunger and thirst, like what? Like a starving man who would uh, um, end up where? Dying. If what? If he doesn't crave after right relationship with God, with others, with creation, with oneself. And if you begin to crave like this, Jacob, guys, I don't think we can handle all four. Take one at a time and go through it. If you crave like this, Jacob, you will be satisfied. Satisfied when? On the last day of the earth? No. Yes, everything will be complete then. But because Jesus is present now, he can satisfy you even now. And so I'm saying... I've written here, long for it. Cry for a divine appetite for right relationship. That, that's all we can pray. Huh? Oh God, please give me a divine appetite for right relationship. When things are wrong, let me not be comfortable. Let me not be mildly dissatisfied. The, the, the opposite reaction is to try to fix things quickly. Don't do that either. Let's say I have a problem with Gisela. Very difficult to have a problem with you. Well, no, not very difficult. <laughs> but <laughs> if I have a problem with Gisela, uh, on one hand, I shouldn't be this mildly dissatisfied. Right relationship should be worked. But I shouldn't be in a hurry to fix it by tonight. Because when we get to blessed are the peacemakers, we will find that Jesus is interested in peacemakers, not peacekeepers. Peacemakers have to make peace and it's messy. Peacekeepers want to arrive at peace at any cost. And you don't want to do that. 
So that we'll deal with two weeks from now. I'm crying out for an appetite for right relationship with God, with others, with oneself, and one day also with creation. I'm sorry I'm putting it there, but just the whole idea of recycling just frightens me. <laughs> Even though I'm trying to put the bottles aside and the stuff aside, it really bugs me. But I will do it now that God has said it. Yeah, every time I see that ad, I think to myself, one night these juice boxes are going to jump out of my... <laughs> and here's the thing, guys. As you keep getting satisfied with God, the strange thing about God and satisfaction is the more he satisfies you, the more you go running back because your desire grows. Anything else will satisfy you to a point where um, there's a thing in economics called the the law of diminishing marginal something, where the more you consume something, the less you want it. But with God, the more you consume something, the more your desire grows. Every time your thirst is slaked, your appetite for thirst grows larger. And so you keep coming back, and you're more and more satisfied. Never an end to it. Let me just pray this, and then we'll move on to the next one. Father, this is a very simple prayer and really there's nothing else I can do or we can do except pray this. That, oh God, please create in us, please create in us an appetite for right relationship. Please create in us an appetite for right relationship. Seven or eight months from now, Matt and Rachel are going to have a baby. And their desire will be, we pray that throughout our lives, this baby be, this child be, this son or daughter be, this man or woman be in right relationship with us as parents. That's something every dad, every mom longs for. Works towards. You work towards it. We want to work towards it. Give us a divine desire and appetite for right relationship with others, with you, with ourselves. We don't even know what that means. And with creation. Oh God, please do this. Please do this because we don't know how to. Prevent us from being mildly dissatisfied and just settling into Kesarasara. Please, oh God, this is so important. Please do this. Let everything in our life come out of father-son and father-daughter intimacies. Let everything of our lives come from father-son or father-daughter intimacies. Right relationship. Spirit of God, you can do this in this uh, room right now. Nobody else can, so please do. Please do. In Jesus' name.